The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. So Ann and I have these little things that we do to one another, and we, um, like we find little funny pictures or jokes or something like that, and then we just hand it off to each other just for the rest of our lives. Um, so yesterday, I ran in, the, um, ran in the 5K down at the Y, and they gave us this little sticker of a picture of a turkey that just says, eat ham on it. Um, and I'd thrown it in the garbage, and my wife dug it out of the garbage this morning. Initially, she stuck it on my dresser, but like, I'm too cool to kind of acknowledge that because I'm going to wait to give it to her at another time. So this morning, she stuck it on the music stand here. So a bit overplayed, but that's okay. Um, If you have your Bible with you this morning, I would love for you to open it uh, to Judges uh, chapters 19 through 21. We're going to be reading through these today. And I just think back as I was standing there singing uh, this morning, I think back to 16, the 16 years that I have been um, involved in ministry, about five of those here at Westway Christian Church. And I feel like over those 16 years, I have, I have read and talked about a lot of really crazy scenes from the Bible, um, but I've never read or talked about these three chapters that we're going to discuss this morning. Uh, when we sent out our, our weekly email, we kind of threw, threw that phrase, you know, kind of trigger warning in here. We want to be aware of that. Um, This is really heavy content this morning. And that, even that phrase trigger warning maybe gets, maybe gets mocked a little bit in our culture. Um, You know, people can't take uh, hard things. And these chapters, you know, they're just hard. And I honestly wish that we had started with these three chapters at the beginning of the season or at the beginning of the series. I told Cody that last week. I wish we had started here because, because these three chapters, even though they're at the end of the book, they really set the stage for the entire book because of how they take place. And it's really hard, it's really hard stuff. Um, follow your heart is a prevailing message of our day. If you just do what you think is right, then we can't go wrong. And that is such a faulty, false teaching. And these chapters that we're going to read about today, they're going to reveal that to us in lots of ways. So again, I just want to, we're going to read all of it. If you haven't read it yet, I, well, it's too late. Um, if at some point you feel like you need to take a break, feel free to go to the back. Like, that's, that's okay. Um, thinking about that follow your heart phrase I love the way our culture teaches us that. One of the things we do in our house is we like to drink a lot of tea. And this particular tea brand, um, you know, they put like little quotes on there, which sound really good on the back of a tea bag, but in real life are awful to follow. Um, Here's one that, that was found last week. Your inner self is your inner guide. And then my personal favorite that someone else got. Uncage your heart. Free your heart. Let it be wild. The tendency when we hear those things is, 
is to kind of do like what, what some of you did and what I would normally do, respond with a little bit of humor and kind of say, that's ridiculous, that's funny. And I'll confess, as I was reading through Judges 19 through 21 this week, there were moments of where I tried to deal with the harshness of what I was reading. I tried to deal with it with humor and find a way to write it off and just think, man, how stupid are these people? How can they be so dumb? And I found myself thinking that phrase that sometimes we say, like, it would be funny if, and just as I read this, um, there's just nothing funny in this text today. So I'm going to pray as we, as we get ready to hear, hear some hard things. God, we're grateful that you are here with us this morning. I pray for those who have who have experienced some of the things that we're going to talk about in these three chapters. Um, I pray, God, that they, they would know that you see them. They would know that you are with them in the midst of their experience. That they would know that they find comfort and peace and strength and mercy from you. They find healing in you. And just as we talk through this and have a few words at the end about why this is in the Bible, I just ask that you would guard my heart. And it's in your son's name. Amen. So this is uh, this beginning of Judges chapter 19. Again, follow along in your Bible, or if you're on you version, you can, you can follow it on there. Now, in those days, Israel had no king. Very first part of Judges chapter 19. And this is the third time we've seen this phrase. And that first verse sets the tone, sets the context, sets the, uh, the entire story of everything else we're going to read. In those days, Israel had no king. And it does something else. It makes us think that if the Israelites had just had a king, all of these things wouldn't happen. That's intentional. There was a man from the tribe of Levi living in a remote area of the hill country of Ephraim. One day he brought home a woman from Bethlehem in Judah to be his concubine. And she became angry with him and returned to her father's home in Bethlehem. After about four months, her husband set out for Bethlehem to speak personally to her and persuade her to come back. He took with him a servant and a pair of donkeys. When he arrived at her father's house, her father saw him and welcomed him. Her father urged him to stay a while, so he stayed three days, eating, drinking, and sleeping there. On the fourth day, the man was up early, ready to leave, but the woman's father said to his son-in-law, have something to eat before you go. So the two men sat down together and had something to drink. Then the woman's father said, please stay another night and enjoy yourself. The man got up to leave, but his father-in-law kept urging him to stay, so he finally gave in and stayed the night. On the morning of the fifth day, he was up early again, ready to leave. And again, the woman's father said, have something to eat, then you can leave later this afternoon. So they had another day of feasting. Later, as the man and his concubine and servant were preparing to leave, his father said, look, it's almost evening. Stay the night and enjoy yourself. Tomorrow you can get up early and be on your way. By this time, the man was determined to leave. So he took his two saddled donkeys and his concubine and headed in the, direction, in the direction of Jebus, that is, Jerusalem. It was late in the day when they neared Jebus, and the man's servant said to them, Let's stop at this Jebusite town and spend the night there. 
No, his master said, we can't stay in this foreign town where there are no Israelites. Instead, we will go to Gibeah. That's a key part. We're not going to stay where our people are, or we want to stay where our people are. We don't want to stay by these wicked people. Come, let's try to get as far as Gibeah or Ramah, and we'll spend the night in one of these towns. So they went on. The sun was setting as they came to Gibeah, a town in the land of Benjamin. So they stopped there to spend the night. They rested in the town square, but no one took them in for the night. That evening, an old man came home from his work in the fields. He was from the hill country of Ephraim, but he was living in Gibeah, where the people were from the tribe of Benjamin. When he saw the travelers sitting in the town square, he asked them where they were from and where they were going. We've been in Bethlehem in Judah, the man replied. We're on our way to a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim, which is my home. I traveled to Bethlehem, and now I'm returning home. But no one has taken us in for the night, even though we have everything we need. We have straw and feed for our donkeys and plenty of bread and wine for ourselves. You're welcome to stay with me, the old man said. I'll give you anything you might need, but whatever you do, don't spend the night in the square. So he took them home with him and fed the donkeys. After they washed their feet, they ate and drank together. While they were enjoying themselves, a crowd of troublemakers from the town surrounded the house. They began beating at the door and shouting to the old man, bring out the man who is staying with you so we can have sex with him. The old man stepped outside to talk to them. No, my brothers, don't do such an evil thing. For this man is a guest in my house, and such a thing would be shameful. Here, take my virgin daughter and this man's concubine. I will bring them out to you, and you can abuse them and do whatever you like. But don't do such a shameful thing to this man. Just a quick pause there. Do whatever you like. Do whatever is right in your own eyes. But they wouldn't listen to him, so the Levite took hold of his concubine and pushed her out the door. Men of the town abused her all night, taking turns raping her until morning. Finally, at dawn, they let her go. At daybreak, the woman returned to the house where her husband was staying. She collapsed at the door of the house and lay there until it was light. When her husband opened the door to leave, there lay his concubine with her hands on the threshold. He said, get up, let's go, but there was no answer, so he put her body on his donkey and took her home. When he got home, he took a knife and he cut his concubine's body into 12 pieces. Then he sent one piece to each tribe throughout all the territory of Israel. Everyone who saw it said, such a horrible crime has not been committed in all the time since Israel left Egypt. Think about it. What are we going to do? Who's going to speak up? And as I read this text, I can't help but think of how they want justice. They want righteousness. And they're going to do what our culture often does. We take it upon ourselves for justice, right? We want righteousness. We want people to pay for the things that have been wronged. But the question that we have to ask is, where is, where is God in this? Let's continue to read. This is Judges chapter 20. Then all the Israelites were united as one man, from Dan in the south to Beersheba in the, from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south, including those from across the Jordan in the land of Gilead. The entire community assembled in the presence of the Lord at Mitzpah, the leaders of all the people and all the tribes of Israel, 400,000 warriors armed with swords, took their positions in the assembly of the people of God. 
Word soon reached the land of Benjamin that the other tribes had gone up to Mizpah. The Israelites then asked how terrible, how this terrible crime had happened. The Levite, the husband of the woman who had been murdered, said, My concubine and I came to spend the night in Gibeah, a town that belongs to the people of Benjamin. That night, some of the leading citizens of Gibeah surrounded my house, planning to kill me, and they raped my concubine until she was dead. That's a bit revisionist, isn't it? It's a bit of a sanitized story. Do you notice how the Levite takes zero responsibility for what had happened? Because if he does that, that completely changes the situation. I think about for, for me, how, how I can be notorious for recounting stories in a way that makes me to be the victim. And I wonder as you talk with other people about things that have happened to you, how do you talk about them? How do you revise the story? It's almost as if this Levite is saying, I made this big mess and now you all need to fix it. So again, he, I'll just start a little earlier. My concubine and I came to spend the night in Gibeah, a town that belongs to the people of Benjamin. That night, some of the leading citizens of Gibeah surrounded the house, planning to kill me, and they raped my concubine until she was dead. So I cut her body into 12 pieces and sent the pieces throughout the territory assigned to Israel, for these men have committed a terrible and shameful crime. Now then, all of you, the entire community of Israel, must decide here and now what should be done about this. There is the cry for justice. There is the cry for righteousness apart from God. A people who live their entire lives doing what's right in their own eyes are now going to determine what justice is. And all the people rose to their feet in unison and declared, none of us will return home. No, not even one of us. Instead, this is what we will do to Gibeah. We will draw lots to decide who will attack it. One-tenth of the men from each tribe will be chosen to supply the warriors with food, and the rest of us will take revenge on Gibeon of Benjamin for the shameful thing they have done to Israel. So all the Israelites were completely united, and they gathered together to attack the town. I want to remind you that the people of Benjamin are Israelites. It's interesting that the thing that united them was not their fight against the Canaanites, but the thing that united them was their fight against themselves. The Israelites sent, ben sent messengers to the tribe of Benjamin saying, what a terrible thing has been done among you. Give up these evil men, these troublemakers from Gibeah so we can execute them and purge Israel of this evil. But the people of Benjamin would not listen. Instead, they came from their towns and gathered at Gibeah to fight the Israelites. In all, 26,000 of their warriors armed with swords arrived in Gibeah to join the 700 elite troops who lived there. Among Benjamin's elite troops, 700 were left-handed. Pause. Does that sound familiar to you? Do you remember earlier when we talked about Ehud from chapter 3 was a Benjamite who was left-handed? And each of them could sling a rock and hit a target with a, within a hair's breadth without missing. Israel had 400,000 experienced soldiers armed with swords, not counting Benjamin's warriors. 
Before the battle, the Israelites went to Bethel and asked God, which tribe should go first to attack the Benjamin? Benjamin. The Lord answered, Judah is to go first. It's another pause. You go back to Judges chapter 1, verse 2. What you'll see is Judah was to go in first as the tribe. So the Israelites left early the next morning and camped near Gibeah. Then they advanced toward Gibeah to attack the men of Benjamin. But Benjamin's warriors who were defending the town came out that day and killed 22,000 Israelites on the battlefield. But the Israelites encouraged each other and took their positions again at the same place they had fought the previous day. For they had gone up to Bethel and wept in the presence of the Lord until evening. They had asked the Lord, should we fight against our relatives from Benjamin again? The Lord said, go out and fight against them. So the next day they went out again to fight against the men of Benjamin. But the men of Benjamin killed another 100, excuse me, another 18,000 Israelites, all of whom who were experienced with the sword. Then the Israelites went up to Bethel and wept in the presence of the Lord and fasted until evening. They also brought burnt offerings and peace offerings to the Lord. The Israelites went up seeking direction from the Lord. Maybe that sounds like that's something they should have done first, doesn't it? In those days, the Ark of the Covenant of God was in Bethel, and Phinehas, son of Eleazar and grandson of Aaron, was the priest. Remember, we've been talking about this, this book as not linear, right? It's not in order. It doesn't start at the beginning and end at the end. A lot of these judges are judging at the exact same time at different places throughout Israel. And our challenge is, is when we read it, we don't often see that. But did you notice how where this places this part of the story? It's almost at the beginning, isn't it? Because who was the priest at the time? Phineas, son of Eleazar, grandson of Aaron. Remember last week we talked about Moses' grandson? See, this is very early in the story. This isn't a matter of starting at the beginning and progressively getting worse and worse and worse and worse. This disaster is happening within two generations of them entering into the promised land. This is about a people who have failed to pass on the faith to their children and to their grandchildren. It doesn't only get worse over time. It gets worse immediately. So the Israelites are in Bethel. They're weeping and they're offering sacrifices. The Israelites asked the Lord, should we fight against our relatives from Benjamin again or should we stop? The Lord said, go, tomorrow I will hand them over to you. So the Israelites sent an ambush all around Gibeah. They went out on the third day and took their positions at the, th at the same time as before, same place as before. When the men of Benjamin came out to attack, they were drawn away from the town. And as they had done before, they began to kill the Israelites. About 30 Israelites died in the open fields and along the roads, one leading to Bethel and the other leading back to Gibeah. Then the warriors of Benjamin shouted, we are defeating them as we did before. But the Israelites had planned in advance to run away so that the men of Benjamin would chase them along the roads and be drawn away from the town. When the main group of Israelite warriors reached Baal Tamar, they turned and took up their positions. 
Meanwhile, the Israelites hiding in ambush to the west of Gibeah jumped up to fight. There were 10,000 elite Israelite troops who advanced against Gibeah. The fighting was so heavy that Benjamin didn't realize the impending disaster. So the Lord helped Israel defeat Benjamin. And that day, the Israelites killed 25,100 of Benjamin's warriors, all of whom were experienced swordsmen. Then the men of Benjamin saw that they were beaten. The Israelites had retreated from Benjamin's warriors in order to give those hiding in ambush more room to maneuver against Gibeah. Then those who were hiding rushed in from all sides and killed everyone in the town. They had arranged to send up a large cloud of smoke from the town as a signal. When the Israelites saw the smoke, they turned and attacked Benjamin's warriors. By that time, Benjamin's warriors had killed about 30 Israelites, and they shouted, We're defeating them as we did in the first battle. But when the warriors of Benjamin looked behind them and saw the smoke rising into the sky from every part of the town, the men of Israel turned and attacked. At this point, the men of Benjamin became terrified because they realized disaster was close at hand, so they turned around and fled before the Israelites toward the wilderness. But they couldn't escape the battle, and the people who came out of the nearby towns were also killed. The Israelites surrounded the men of Benjamin and chased them relentlessly, finally overtaking them east of Gibeah. That day, 18,000 of Benjamin's strongest warriors died in battle. The survivors fled into the wilderness toward the rock of Rimmon, but Israel killed 5,000 of them along the road. They continued the chase until they had killed another 2,000 near, near Gidom. So that day, the tribe of Benjamin lost 25,000 strong warriors armed with swords, leaving only 600 men who escaped to the Rock of Rimmon for where they lived for four months. And the Israelites returned and slaughtered every living thing in all the towns, the people, the livestock, and everything they found. They also burned down all the towns they came to. We're going to continue right into Judges chapter 21. The Israelites had vowed, we're in trouble now. If you remember Jephthah's vow from earlier in this series, the Israelites are making a vow to do something. They vowed at Mizpah, we will never give our daughters in marriage to a man from the tribe of Benjamin. Now the people went to Bethel and sat in the presence of God until evening, weeping loudly and bitterly. O Lord, God of Israel, they cried out, why has this happened in Israel? Now one of our tribes is missing from Israel. Do you hear what these tribes are saying? Do you hear how they are not taking any responsibility for any of their actions? The pride and arrogance of self-righteousness drips off their tongues. They're completely self-unaware. They don't take any responsibility, and they blame shift. It's not us who killed the tribe of Benjamin. I know what we'll do. Let's blame God. Early the next morning, the people built an altar and presented their burnt offerings and peace offerings on it. Then they said, Who among the tribes of Israel did not join us at Mitzpah when we herald our assembly in the presence of the Lord? At that time, they had, they had taken a solemn oath in the Lord's presence, vowing that anyone who refused to come would be put to death. 
So just in case you're not following like this little section of the story, when all of the tribes of Israel were gathering together, they said, whatever tribe doesn't show up, whatever town or city doesn't show up, we're going to put them to death. And I find that so, like their double down on their self-righteousness is so fantastic. And I don't mean that in a good way. I mean, the double down on their self-righteousness sounds a lot like my double down on self-righteousness. When I feel bad over something that I do, isn't it easier to blame somebody else? Isn't it easier to look upon judgment on someone else? And that's what they're doing here. They blame God, and in their self-righteousness, what they're going to do is they're going to go out and kill some more people. The Israelites felt sorry for their brother Benjamin and said, today one of the tribes of Israel has been cut off. How can we find wives for the few who remain, since we have sworn by the Lord not to give them our daughters in marriage? So they asked, who among the tribes of Israel did not join us at Mitzpah when we assembled in the presence of the Lord? And they discovered that no one from Jabesh-Gilead had attended the assembly. For after they counted all the people, no one from Jabesh-Gilead was present. So the assembly sent 12,000 of their best warriors to Jabesh-Gilead with orders to kill everyone there, including women and children. This is what you are to do, they said. Completely destroy all the males and every woman who is not a virgin. Among the residents of Jabesh-Gilead, they found 400 young virgins who had never slept with a man, and they brought them to the camp at Shiloh in the land of Canaan. The Israelite assembly sent a peace delegation to the remaining people of Benjamin who were living at the Rock of Rimmon. Then the men of Benjamin returned to their homes, and the 400 women of Jabesh-Gilead who had been spared were given to them as wives. But there were not enough women for all of them. The people felt sorry for Benjamin because the Lord had made this gap among the tribes of Israel. Wonder if you're seeing what's going on here. Wonder if you're seeing how the people are not taking any responsibility for everything that's happening in their lives. And what they've done is what we do, right? We make a, like we, there's this story that we tell ourselves and we live out of the story. Here's the story that Israel is living out right now. They're a bunch of victims. And everyone else is going to pay for their victimhood. So the elders of the assembly asked, how can we find wives for the few women who remain since the women of the tribe of Benjamin are dead? There must be heirs for the survivors so that an entire tribe of Israel is not wiped out. But we cannot give them our own daughters in marriage because we have sworn with a solemn oath that anyone who does this will fall under God's curse. Then they thought of the annual festival of the Lord held in Shiloh, south of Labona and north of Bethel, along the east side of the road that, runs, that goes from Bethel to Shechem. They told the men of Benjamin who needed wives, go and hide in the vineyards. When you see the young women of Shiloh come out for their dances, Rush out from the vineyards 
and each of you can take one of them home to the land of Benjamin to be your wife. Anyone at the what in the world is going on in this story point? And when their fathers and brothers come to us in protest, we will tell them, please be sympathetic. Let them have your daughters. For we didn't find wives for all of them when we destroyed Jabesh Gilead. And you are not guilty of breaking the vow since you did not actually give your daughters to them in marriage. So the men of Benjamin did as they were told. Each man caught one of the women as she danced in the celebration and carried her off to be his wife. They returned to their own land and they rebuilt their towns and lived in them. Then the people of Israel departed by tribes and families and they returned to their own homes. This last verse is probably the most important verse in the entire book. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Here's how a friend of mine summarized this chapter to me this week via text. They go to war to avenge one woman who was violated and murdered and fix all their problems by kidnapping, violating, and selling women so all the men can feel better about a vow they made to God who never asked them to make that vow. See, as a, as a Christian, you need to know why this is in the Bible. People are going to ask you why this is in the Bible. Maybe you wonder why this is in the Bible. As Christians, we need to know why this is in the Bible. Let me tell you why it's not in the Bible first. Number one, it's not in the Bible because God condones this behavior. This is not behavior that God is approving of. This is not behavior that God is instructing his people to do. And I think part of our challenge when we read texts like this, when we read chapters like this, is it's, this is a conversation that, that I had with Anne about these chapters. Like, it's presented so objectively, right? It's just presented as this is something that happened. And I think what we kind of are looking for is, like, we want to we see God condemn it. We wish that God would condemn it. But the reality of it is, God has been condemning the Israelites for their behavior for 18 chapters. And since this happened at the beginning and not at the end, he's done nothing but condemn their behavior. He's done nothing but told them what they should be doing and what they shouldn't be doing. See, they've had a choice. And up until this point, we've, we've seen chapter after chapter of the people doing evil, God punishing them justly, and then God delivering them after they cry out. So why... Why does this book end here? I think there are a couple reasons. I have four. Number one, these three chapters are here um, to give a warning and an example. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul writes this, talking about not this particular situation, but talking about something that had happened in the Old Testament. Paul writes this, These things happened as a warning to us so that we would not crave evil things as they did or worship idols as some of them did. 
And then a few verses later, in verse 11, chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, it says, These things happened to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. So when we read a text like these three chapters, and we wonder why they are in the Bible, they are a warning to us and an example to us. This is, this is God telling his people, don't be like them. If you live for yourself, this is what you're going to get. Don't be like them. Because rejecting God is sin. And we saw that throughout this book, haven't we? The people reject God. There are consequences of sin. And they cry out and he delivers them. And then they reject God and there are consequences of sin. And the issue with consequences of sin is they pile up all around us. And see, we don't often think about the consequences of sin while we are sinning. We only think about the thing that we're doing at the time, which we enjoy doing. But those consequences of sin pile up, which is the second thing, the second reason that this is in the text, because the wages of sin is death. What, what God is showing us in real terms, in real life, is that when we continue to live in sin, we're going to die. Spiritually, physically, mentally, emotionally. When we read this story, what we're seeing is the wages of sin is death. This is, I'm going to read from James 1, verses 14 to 15. I just, I love the way this presents sin, and I want you to think about this in your own life. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. I wonder for a moment if, let's just say today, because some of us are going to go out of here, and like we're going to choose to sin today. I wonder at what point can we stop that process? Can we stop that cycle? These verses are telling us how that builds. Temptations are own desires. They entice us and drag it away. That gives birth to our sinful actions. Then when it's allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Sin leads to death. And that's Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. What are wages? Wages are something you earn. If I have a job, and I do, I earn my pay. As people who have jobs, you earn your pay. When I sin, when you sin, your payment, our payment is death. That's what we get in return for our sin. Here's the third reason, and we've been kind of dancing around this throughout this series. Um, this is in the Bible to show us that people who had faith aren't always faithful. People who had faith aren't always faithful. 
Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, they're all listed in Hebrews chapter 11. As Christians, we kind of call that like the hall of faith or the Christian hall of fame. Like looking back on all of these people from the Old Testament, and it's like by faith Abraham did this, by faith Moses did that. All of these people, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. And the thing that I want you to notice is they're not commended for their actions They are not in Hebrews chapter 11 because of what they did. They're in Hebrews chapter 11 because of the faith they had in God. And see, this is really good news for us. Because as Christians, we're people of faith. And you know this. People who have faith aren't always faithful. Has anyone experienced that last week? Anyone wasn't faithful last week? I'm the only one in the room. Right? Like, this is good news. People who have faith aren't always faithful. That's not an excuse. And it's not faith in themselves. It's not faith in ourselves. But it's having faith in God. Like, why did the people even go to Shiloh to weep and mourn and offer sacrifices because they believed that God was going to do something, right? See, they acted out of that faith. We have these examples, not because they're great people, because at this point in the story, this should, we, like, we should be disavowed that the people and judges are great, shouldn't we? The next time you hear a story about Samson, And what you're presented is him standing before the columns and pushing them down. And like, oh, Samson was such a great guy. I want you to be like, but was he? I mean, really? See, people who have faith aren't always faithful. And here's the best one. The final reason why this is in the Bible and the final reason why we're talking about it because this shows us that God's story is written but not yet finished. God's story is written but not yet finished. I love the way Warren Wearsby talks about this, that God's story isn't finished. Um, He talks about it. He has a friend who watches old basketball games because he knows the outcome, right? I love... Man, flipping through Big Ten, and it says Ohio State Classic. There's a lot of those, by the way. Um, And it says Ohio State Classic. Like, I can watch that game, and I can have zero anxiety about the outcome of that game. Now, if it says Purdue Classic, and they're playing Ohio State, I know that Purdue's going to win. So I don't watch that game. But when I watch a college football game that I've already seen, I can relax. I can have less anxiety about the outcome of the game, no matter what the score is at any point in that game. Are you following me? When that timer at the end of the fourth quarter hits zero, maybe a minute into the game, the other team was winning. But because it's an Ohio State football classic, who's going to win the game? I don't know if you... I don't know if you know this, but earlier this year, we did an entire series on the book of Revelation. We talked about 21 chapters from the book of Revelation. And and maybe you missed the ending, 
But Jesus wins. You should clap at that. Thank you. Thank you, yes. Like Jesus wins. See, Judges is not the end of the story for God's people. And what I would tell you, whatever situation and circumstance and hardship and reality you're dealing with right now, whatever it is, I don't know yours, but I know mine. Whatever yours is, see, we know the end of the story. And the last word is not a whole bunch of murder, chaos, and death at the end of the book of Judges. The last word of God's word is Jesus enthroned in heaven and Christians, us around him, worshiping him and praising him and enjoying eternity forever. See, that's the last word of the Bible. That's the last word of this story. And when we feel like we're in a judge's life, what we need to do is we need to remember that's not the counter hasn't hit zero. The time is not up because God's victory has been assured. And righteousness and justice and judgment and eternity and hope, that's offered to each and every single one of us. And each one of us has a choice when we are made aware of this. That's the key. As much as I love Hebrews chapter 11 and the, the hall of faith idea, I love Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy waiting, awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor besides God's throne. See, this story isn't over. Because there's a king coming. Did you catch that at the end of Judges? Do you see how you're cued to look for a king? See, the people of this day were going to read this, and they're going to they're see that in the days there's no king, and everyone did what they want. So I know we need a king. We need a king. But it's not a human king. And if we were going to just roll right through the rest of the Old Testament, we would see the failure of the human kings. There have been so many hints and so many suggestions about the reality of Jesus in this book. And that's who we are being pointed to, is to a real king. This year for Christmas, we're going to talk about how Jesus fulfills his role as king. I want to share with you our bumper from that series.
if you are living in a judge's world, if the story of your life is judges, I want to tell you that that's not the end of the story for you. I want to invite you to find hope in the person of Jesus Christ. And we're not just going to talk about him at Christmas, but at the end of January, we're going to go through the, we're going to go through the gospel of Mark, ending on Easter. Because the king that we need is not a king in Jerusalem. The leader that we need does not sit in a White House in Washington, D.C. The leader that we need is enthroned in heaven. He is the answer. Let's pray. God, I'm so thankful that we have the opportunity again to worship you. I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful for a word that pulls no pulls no punches, hides nothing about humanity, reveals to us our brokenness, not that we would wallow in it, not that we would fall prey to staying stuck in it, but that we would cast it at your feet in faith, that we would trust in faith that you have taken our sin that you are the solution. It's not found in ourselves. It's found in you. And I pray, God, that those who need to change their story would see you at work in their story. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.